Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. Professor Stephen Hoffman, the director of the Global Strategy Lab and a professor of global health, law, and political science at York University, speaking about the coronavirus, said, we currently have big blind spots in our global surveillance system. I spoke with him about that. Also, Lane Morris, former United States Special Forces Sergeant who lost his eye in a battle firefight with Omar Khadr. He joined us, along with Scott Newark, former Crown Attorney in Alberta, and we spoke about the fact that an Ontario court has given Mr. Morris the opportunity to ask questions of Omar Khadr as Morris and Tabitha Spear, the widow of an American medic who was killed in that firefight, the opportunity to pursue a $134 million lawsuit against Cotter. You'll hear that conversation with Lane Morris and Scott Newark. Gloria Allred, famed lawyer on Harvey Weinstein's rape trial. One of his Allred's clients has been attacked by Weinstein's lawyers. Chris Janselowitz from Global News on the Oscars and... Fabian Colas, the creator of the Toronto Black Film Festival. We spoke with her as well. Some of what you'll hear on the podcast this time. Professor Stephen Hoffman joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. He's the director of the Global Strategy Lab and a professor of global health, law, and political science at York University. Professor Hoffman, thank you very much for taking the time. And I just want to take a quote of yours and ask you about it. You're quoted as saying, we currently have big blind spots in our global surveillance system. Sounds ominous. Would that include residents of Wuhan and Hubei province leaving by the millions before Beijing locked down the province, essentially, and moving to neighboring provinces in China where there are many migrant and temporary workers who may contract the virus and then move back home? Well, our global surveillance system has, uh, has many blind spots. It's because we have different public health capacity uh, to detect and then respond to viral outbreaks around the world. Here in Canada, we have a fantastic public health system such that if the virus or when the virus comes again to Canada, there will be systems in place to identify it and quickly contain it. But yes, uh, China, uh, while having, having very good public health system, doesn't have that level of a public health system like we have in Canada. And so even within China, where there is a lot, there will still be blind spots. Did they, uh, were they slow off the mark and perhaps intentionally so? Well, uh, so what we know is that uh, some of the information about the early cases in this outbreak were not reported as um, clearly as we all would have liked. So, for example, initially, at the beginning of January, there was messages of this unique cluster of viral pneumonia cases, and it was very much emphasized that it was mostly elderly or people with previous health conditions that were being affected. We later learned, uh, a couple weeks later, towards the end of January, in an article published in the Lancet Medical Journal that described the first 41 cases, that actually this virus does affect the whole population, and it was more severe than was initially said. Now, is that uh, deception? Um, I don't know. But what it is, is clearly not getting information as much as possible. What's most likely is that local public health officials in China were trying not to make as big of a deal with this, hoping they could address it, but that once national-level authorities in China learned of the seriousness of it, they demanded 
that they that the local public health authorities report all information uh, and work with international authorities. Would you assess the situation for us now, and and what the World Health Organization is telling us? You were a project manager for the World Health Organization in Switzerland uh, at, at one time in your career, and I'm sure you're still in, involved with them. But uh, assess the situation per what we're being told by the WHO. Well, what we're being told is that this is a low risk, and that's correct. So from, especially from a Canadian perspective, this virus remains a low risk. It's a lower risk than the seasonal flu, for which um, many people in Canada don't perceive it as such a risk, that they don't get vaccinated. Um, so in that respect, this is, that's definitely correct. It is a low risk. I think, though, the part of um, what WHO is also currently talking about is that uh, China has responded very well to this. Now, I think in some respects that's true. So China's technological and scientific response has been extremely impressive, right? I mean, uh, genomically, sequencing the genome of this virus within two weeks of it at first appearing is just unprecedented in an outbreak, and that's fantastic. But the way that information has been uh, shared, also uh, the way we've, uh, in China, there's been mass quarantines in a way that we've never seen before in public health. I'm not sure that that's something that I'd be praising. Uh, That being said, if I was the head of the World Health Organization, my primary goal would be to keep China at the table. And if the cost of that is needing to praise China, I would probably do it. But that doesn't mean that me, as a professor at York University, that I need to praise China, nor should any of your listeners, or that sort of thing. Absolutely. So you've also said, if, if I'm correct about this, I think I am, The next two weeks will tell the tale about whether we're on the road to a full global coronavirus pandemic. That's right. We are at the critical point in the outbreak where hopefully we will see it peter off and go away, uh, but also potentially see its further spread. I think what's, what's really important to look at right now is whether this outbreak has sustained spread outside of China. Indeed, that was probably the reason why the World Health Organization delayed in calling this a public health emergency of international concern, because up until that point, and even now, 99% of cases are in China. So if over the next two weeks we don't start to see more cases, then the most likely scenario is that this would mostly uh, go away. Uh, May I ask you about the potency of the virus? We're told that only 2% of those contracting it so far have died. That sounds, in a, in a way, it sounds reassuring to the layperson. What does it really mean? Well, it is reassuring, and that's, that is actually the, the silver lining or the little bit of good news that we, that, we, that we do get out of this outbreak in that the more and more cases that get reported, the, we're actually seeing a lower percentage of those cases being serious. And so that's, that's really important because I think initially what attracted so much attention to this viral outbreak was that it was perceived to have a, quite a high uh, death rate, uh, which then, of course, would mobilize and get everyone extremely worried. But that's not what we're seeing. And indeed, every day when the new numbers come out, it's, we're seeing that it's less and less severe. And so now it looks like it's around 2 to 3% um, people who do get the virus uh, who pass. But... As I said, it keep, that number keeps on going down, and I wouldn't be surprised if it went further down. And what, so that means this looks more like the seasonal flu than like SARS or MERS, which were other coronaviruses that we um, were comparing it to at the beginning of the outbreak. Okay. 
What happens to the world as we know it if a full-blown global pandemic arrives? Well, I think that's very unlikely in this case, particularly given uh, the way that we've seen this outbreak evolve. What's much more likely is that in a couple of weeks from now, uh, this all goes away or that it rolls into something that looks more like the seasonal flu, which, uh, which is always out there and for which um, uh, we just sort of are, are used to it and uh, acknowledge that it's part of our, of our reality. Um, I think if it does get worse, we will increasingly see uh, governments take more stringent efforts. Already we're seeing some countries impose travel restrictions, which is really unfortunate because travel bans and such, they just don't work. When people want to travel, they find a way of doing it. And then by circumventing official channels, it makes it harder for public health to do its job. But I think if it does get worse, we'll also see a lot more public awareness. The key things people should be doing for this novel coronavirus are the exact same things people should be doing at this time of year anyways. I'm talking about things like washing your hands, coughing into one's elbow, and staying home from work or school if one's sick. Scott New York, former Alberta prosecutor, also was executive director of the Canadian Police Association, now professor at Simon Fraser University. So this one made its way to Parliament. Uh, Scott, does that really make any difference? Um, well, I must admit, when I saw that the motion was before the House, I just assumed that, uh, you know, perhaps your good friend Justin Trudeau had been listening to your show last week. Um, what's unique about it is that uh, the government ordered, said that, you know, as they typically do, oh, we're going to have an internal investigation as to how this happened and, you know, who did what or didn't do what. Um, that's what they normally do. And as we discussed last week, that that's really not a very good way to get to the bottom of something. And so on, I believe it was um, Tuesday of this week, the Conservatives, Pierre-Paul Huss, who's a, an MP from Quebec, put forward a motion that essentially called on the Justice Committee to conduct its own examination of what exactly took place in this case, as well as something that's been raised, which is a change in the manner of appointments that the Liberals brought in in 2017 to members of the parole board. And I must admit, I was very pleased to see this, because as you will probably recall, um, I first got involved in this whole criminal justice policy reform when I went, I was still a, uh, a prosecutor in Alberta, and it was similar kind of a, you know, an outrageous uh, action by Correctional Service of Canada in releasing a career criminal killer named Daniel Zingra, who escaped and then uh, went on and uh, killed at least two people. And, of course, everybody covered everything up. And I ended up uh, testifying in front of the uh, then House of Commons Justice Committee, which, you know, really helped. It, it led to an independent investigation as well, too. Uh, and so it was the beginning of, of the process of change. And so I'm actually, you know, cautiously optimistic that the committee is going to be able to uh, be there and ask the right questions and hopefully it'll be done in a way so that, uh, and, of course, the Liberals don't have a majority anymore, mm -hmm. so they don't control the process, um, that will uh, get to the bottom of this and understand what exactly took place. Because it looks like, as we discussed, and the more I've read of it, I think confirms this, this was not something that uh, the, uh, the parole board members came up with. Instead, it was part of a correctional release plan that they dis the parole board discovered during the second hearing on the guy and, in, and expressed their concern about it, but they didn't do anything about it because they just, it, I think, 
it have become a rubber stamp for Correctional Services of Canada. And so yeah. that's something that the, uh, uh, the committee needs to get to the bottom of, is that if they thought it was serious enough to comment on it, why didn't they just refuse to grant him the parole well, exactly. that condition? And a 22-year-old would not be dead now. Yeah. You I know, mean, it's just, think about it, it, is so, it is so, it is so, look it up, itself look, was, hey, Scott, look it up in the dictionary, right, under abhorrent. Yeah. Not a you, I'm not mean you, I mean them. Let me ask you about, about uh, this uh, Carlos LeMond. Uh, oh, yeah. The, the Ottawa, as he's called, terror twin, who was imprisoned uh, in 16, 2016. He was looking to leave Canada to go fight for Islamic State, and then he was uh, accused of trying to radicalize inmates in prison, and uh, he was he was actually put in a special handling unit was, where, yeah, where the likes of Clifford the, Olson uh, and Carla Homolka had been. Where Clifford Olson yeah, had been, uh, exactly. Uh, uh, put before so, but now he's in a halfway house in Calgary. Yeah, and he had threatened to um, kill p- other inmates if they didn't convert to Islam or to have their families killed. Or his version he's, of Islam. He's decided that, uh, um, uh, or he was described by the parole board, uh, you have not shown... Significant rati- indications of change since incarceration with you attempting to radicalize others and threatening authority figures. Um, that he was, uh, the parole board member described Larmont's potential harm to others and national security as exceptional. And yet he is released uh, uh, early from his court-imposed jail sentence. And again, once you read through it, it's, you can find the same absolute nonsense in here because it's and the, the reporter and i have i use that word in question marks that wrote the story just repeats the absolute misleading information from correctional service of canada because they say oh the exact quote was he was been freed under a law that requires federal offenders to be released after serving two-thirds of a fixed sentence in the statutory release law the offender serves the rest of their certain sentence in the community that is a flat-out lie our law does permit people who are deemed to be a high risk to be detained, but only if Correctional Service of Canada refers the case for that to the parole board. If they don't do that, then the parole board is not allowed to say you have to stay in custody. And this, this nonsense of saying, oh, well, yeah, you know, that's the way that it is, it's just completely factually incorrect. It's been done before. Remember that we talked last year about a case of another convicted terrorist, Kevin Omar Mohammed. Exactly the same thing happened. Mm-hmm. And Minister Goodale, when the, the members of yeah. the committee started asking him some questions, yeah. he did the same kind of a dodge to say, oh, yeah, well, you know, that's the way our system works. Lane, good to talk to you again. So um, the judgment in the U.S. court against Carter for $134 million for you and Tabitha Spear, did you ever lose hope of being able to get some of that money, and, or, or do, and do you feel any any better about things after the Ontario court ruling? Oh, I certainly feel better about it. But I mean, let me be clear: I haven't lived my life with any expectation uh, of receiving any financial gain of it. As I, I think I've said from the beginning, my primary purpose uh, for that lawsuit was to simply prevent Al Qaeda and uh, those affiliated with them from using Western Western banking systems to uh, move money around and use that against us. And uh, unfortunately, um, Mr. Trudeau, who has who has greased that process of uh, of money to Al Qaeda and its and its sympathies um, repeatedly. I mean, I've seen the photo 
of uh, Mr. Trudeau, the smiling, the handshake, the big cardboard check, um, you know, like you've won the lottery. That's not uh, that's not the that's not the picture of a man who is re- reluctantly distributing funds that he's been told that although it's wrong, he has to do anyways because it because it's inevitable. But we've heard more stories from Mr. Trudeau on his rationale and thinking on this subject than uh, than most people are able to tell. So I'm not. Uh, I put no faith in anything that man says. Let me bring Scott Newark, former Alberta Crown Attorney and now professor at Simon Fraser University, was also a senior policy advisor for a former public safety minister in in Canada. Uh, Scott, I'm trying to remember whether that 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 cardboard check was was just a, a meme of truth or whether it was real. I, can't, I honestly can't remember now. No, uh, and I'm afraid I didn't hear the last bit of uh, what uh, Lane was saying. So. I, I can't uh, really comment. I mean, I think the important thing is that you pointed out that the the way in which the money was actually paid to him, and I think from the get-go, one thing that has also never been revealed is how much of that $10.5 million was actually paid to Cotter's lawyers. Okay, it's known as a contingency fee arrangement, and um, that may have been why they wanted it done that quickly, mm-hmm. which was so that the... Uh, uh, the uh, uh, plaintiffs on the, uh, the civil suit couldn't have stopped the payment of the money, uh, which is a sort of a regular process that could be done. Mm-hmm. And that may be a difficulty uh, because it's it's no longer under Carter's control if he's paid off a debt. Okay. That's something that hopefully will p- potentially emerge during this examination for discovery the Ontario courts now ordered. Okay, Lane, Scott is uh, very well versed uh, former prosecutor, and he was the executive director of the Canadian Police Association, and also, uh, as I said, a, a senior policy advisor to a federal minister for public safety. Do you have a question for Scott about the process going forward now, uh, what, what may or may not happen in this country? Well, I guess uh, my my question would be the line of uh, questioning that the lawyers would put to Mr. Cotter. What would that involve? And the fact that Mr. Cotter and his lawyers have told so many stories yeah. over the years, is that going to, I mean, what makes this any different um, than any other, you know, any, any more believable than any of the other stories that have been told? Yeah, that's an excellent point, because if you if you go back to the, right from the very beginning, it was, he claimed he didn't do it, then he said, okay, I did do it, and then he said, after he got sentenced and transferred back to Canada, he said, oh, I didn't do it. And the latest version of it is, I don't remember whether I did it or not, but I hope I didn't. And what he's doing is he's trying to um, use that as a block for the Canadian courts to enforce the American civil judgment. And he actually apparently even referred to um, allowing uh, your lawyers to ask him questions about, well, wait a minute, you know, you signed this huge affidavit, I've got a copy of it, you know, where you admitted to all of what you did in great detail, said you were under no threat. You know, what is it that, as you just said, what is it that, you know, has uh, caused that to change? In other words, to be cross-examined, and Cotter objected to that because he said it would amount to torture. So I think it's given uh, the lawyers that you've got up here in Canada some tools to be able to use so as to, uh, uh, you know, get rid of 
yet another roadblock that Cotter and his lawyers are trying to put up. Do you have any, Lane, do you have any sense that uh, something positive is going to come out of this development now going forward? And Cotter, by the way, claims he signed the guilty to committing war crimes uh, papers because it was the only way for him to be released from Guantanamo and allowed to serve his sentence in a Canadian prison. Do you have, do you have any sense, Lane, that anything's going to really change? Well, I mean, it's a step in the right direction, but uh, Scott probably know better than better than I. I'm sure there's um, there's many many months, if not years, ahead uh, of fighting until this gets resolved. But uh, Omar Cotter could easily resolve this right now, make a full and complete confession. There's a there's a widow and two children uh, in America who. Um, miss their husband, their father, and and deserve some type of financial uh, recompense for that. Um, as as a as a show of real remorse from Mr. Cotter, who is who has never um, said anything other than the very most hollow sounding um, apologies, and and not really an apology. So yeah, just, he, he could end I, this. It could end any time. Um, yeah. But Mr. Cotter chooses not to. But I agree with you. He's never shown any sign of remorse. Just, I'm sure your lawyers are aware of this. Uh, but Cotter, we know that Cotter has at least three million dollars in assets from the 10.5 settlement because he bought a a little shopping mall in Edmonton. So it's the assets that he actually has. And I'm sure your lawyers will use the opportunity to cross-examine um, Cotter about how much money he out of the 10.5 million he actually gave to the lawyers yeah it it's just i mean if you had told me uh whatever that was 18 years ago that um that mr cotter would be enriched financially yeah. um from within uh his own country uh by politicians that uh would have would have stunned me i i, I figured it would be some hollywood um, types want to, you know, give them a bunch of money to make a movie. I just but, want to, uh, to have the Canadian government do that. Just it? in the time we have left here, also, Scott, when Mr. Trudeau insisted at the time that unless Omar Carter was paid this settlement of $10.5 million, Canada would be embroiled in a multi-year effort in court and would definitely lose maybe 30 or $40 million. He had no basis for saying that. Nonsense. The, the, the line that I used when it became clear that Carter was doing this and they were increasing the amount of money, my recommendation was not one nickel. I remember. If we'd have gone to court and fought in court like we should have done, he wouldn't have got any money, in my opinion. Okay, one question, final question, well, Lane. How, now go ahead, Lane. Uh, I mean, aren't some things worth fighting for? Don't, good point. Isn't there anything that is worth fighting for and say, all right, if we lose, we lose, but on the principle of the thing, um, we, need to, we need to see this through. Yeah, and in fact, the actions, in my opinion, and I did some extensive research, as, as Roy's mentioned, um, I have absolutely no doubt whatsoever that what our officials, intelligence officials did, that is the subject of this uh, uh, lawsuit, was absolutely and entirely appropriate. We actually got information about the fundraising efforts of the Cotter family and the network that had been developed. We, we got information that we were able to actually find roadside bombs. It was justifiable, and instead, the Trudeau government threw our officials under the bus. Ms. Allred, thank you very much for the time. I, I don't know where well, to begin. thank you very much for inviting me, Roy. And by the way, I represent 
three witnesses in this criminal case now pending in New York against Mr. Weinstein. I represent Mimi, uh, who is one of the two victims for whom criminal charges have been filed. I also represent Annabella Shora, who is an actress, and uh, although uh, she is not technically a victim for whom charges have been filed, because what she alleges is that he raped her in the 90s, so too late uh, to file a charge, a criminal charge, but having said that, she is a witness on the issue of sexually predatory conduct. And in addition, I represent one of the prior bad act witnesses. They're called Molyneux witnesses in New York, Lauren Marie Young, who testified this week. And uh, so that's three that I represent. And you're right, the uh, defense tried to get me excluded from the courtroom. They said the reason was they intended to call me as an impeachment witness. Uh, the court did not exclude me from the courtroom. Uh, whether they actually call me, I think, is truly doubtful. Uh, but uh, under the heading of uh, be careful what you wish for, if they do call me, that's going to be a problem for them. As of this date, they have not served me. Uh, and so I think it's doubtful they will, but if they want to, you know, God bless them. What do you say to the fact that they bring up, a, I think it was a psychologist, who says that alleged rape victims may have memory issues because we all have memory issues over time, and that accuses your client, Miriam Haley, of having voluntarily maintained correspondence with Weinstein and having engaged sexually after he assaulted her. Okay, well, I mean, do we really need an expert to tell us we can't remember everything in our lives? Every, every If that's detail? all they've got, I guess. Uh, you know, and, and, you know, this is a an expert, by the way, who has many, many, many times testified uh, for the defense against adult survivors of child sexual abuse. That's one of the things that she's known for. Um, but having said that, uh, look... Uh, as to my client, Mimi, she's been extremely brave, very courageous. What she testified to was that um, that she met Mr. Weinstein, uh, that he wanted to, that he, he asked her to give him a massage, which she said essentially call the front desk. You know, she doesn't do massages. Uh, she was looking to be a production assistant. And that she, alleged, she testified that he wanted her to go to Paris with him, that she declined uh, that at some point uh, he uh, asked her to come to his apartment to talk. Uh, she did not in any way think that it would be have anything to do with sex because she made it clear to him that she was not interested in that. And then she alleges that when she got to his apartment, uh, he grabbed her, uh, forced her into the bedroom, onto the bed. She kept saying, no, no. She was trying to fight him off. She said, I have my period. No, and then she testified that he got her down on the bed. He was very much bigger and heavier than she was, and that he literally pulled out her tampon and then, uh, you know, uh, orally copulated her, which is alleged to be a criminal act, and because she did not consent, according to her testimony. If so, that's if the jury believes it. So this is, you know, the, whether or not she ended up not fighting him off another time later and freezing uh, is really irrelevant to the original, uh, the original act that she testified to. And uh, so I think that's what's important. There were only a few emails from her over the years, 
And uh, so, you know, uh, this is more complicated when there's a business relationship or an employment relationship, Roy. It's not like a stranger in a dark alley. You know, if you're trying to do business with someone, you want them to look at a script, you want all of this, you know, you, it's not, it doesn't mean you will never communicate again. But I think she, her, her testimony was quite compelling, even though she went through a grueling cross-examination uh, by as highly paid attorneys, one of whom, Donna Rotuno, has, in, has stated in the New York Times interview uh, that she wouldn't, she'd never been sexually assaulted. She wouldn't be because she wouldn't put herself in a position to, to be sexually assaulted, which is so insulting to so many victims. I mean, you mean if you walk down a dark alley and, and somebody grabs you and puts a gun to your head, uh, you know, is that, did you put yourself in that position because you're out at night? I mean, what if you're a victim of child sexual abuse in your own home? Were you supposed to never live in your own home? Yeah, well, it doesn't make relatives? any sense. That doesn't I mean, make... this is just so insensitive. It's cruel. Uh, are you satisfied with the way the prosecution delivered its case? I thought the prosecution did a very, very impressive job, very strong. And, uh, you know, the defense, with its first witness that it called uh, on Thursday, just every, even the New York Times said, they tanked on their first witness, but even the day before the New York Times headline, I said they it was a catastrophe for for them. It was devastating. It was a witness they were trying they called because they were trying to, you know, undermine the testimony of my client Annabella Shora, and um, and uh, you know that she said that she told him you know not long after she alleges she was raped by Mr. Weinstein about it, and um, anyway. He a lot of his texts were revealed in the courtroom, and he said, "Oh, I didn't know my texts were ever going to be in a courtroom." And in those texts, uh, you know, he suggests that he's very loyal to uh, Mr. Weinstein. He he talks about what he calls the dog pile of actresses who seem to be so brave with their re- repressed memories. So obviously, he's got a strong bias. Um, you know, he did have an economic connection with Mr. Weinstein. And um, I, I just think he, he, he ended, you know, he, they, the prosecution made mincemeat of him. All right. Uh, I've never seen such a terrific cross as was done by the lead prosecutor. Chris Jan Selowich joins me, National Online Supervisor Entertainment for Global News. He knows a lot more about this stuff than, than I ever would. You know, it's scary, eh, Chris? When, when, when somebody's done something once, they're all, they think that they know what they're talking about, like me. <laughs> yes, Absolutely. <laughs> Well, you know, everyone has their favorite picks, uh, especially on Oscar night. Everyone, you know, is like, oh, I love this actor. I love this actress. Oh, I love this director. I love this movie. And, you know, they just get their favorites and that's how it goes, you know? Of course. That's why it's, that's why it's fun, you know? I mean, if you have a little bit of a vested interest, then you're going to turn it on and watch to see if your, your movie or your, the actor you like, uh, you know, ends up winning. What do you, uh, which ones did you see that you, uh, that you remember particularly? Well, I'm going to be completely transparent with you. I saw most of them. Unfortunately, the ones that you loved, uh, I didn't actually see. I did see 1917, but uh, Ford versus Ferrari, I didn't. And Richard Jewell, I didn't. But I heard they were great. And critically, yeah, you know, they were well-received. Um, unfortunately, I think they've been overshadowed a little bit by a bunch of others uh, that'll come stampeding through tonight, as you'll see. Um, my personal favorites uh, this year were kind of the understated movie, which is Jojo Rabbit, which is about um, a young boy who's sort of uh, enamored by the Nazis, and it show- shows his journey of learning about what the Nazis really are about. Uh, but it's a satirical movie. Uh, it's very uncomfortable for the first 10 minutes. You have to get used to the humor, but um, 
I found that movie to be uh, astounding. Loved it. Uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is another one that you'll probably see win some trophies tonight um, by Quentin Tarantino. Uh, that one was a very sumptuous movie. Um, a lot of people didn't like it for that reason. It was slow, um, but I found it to be uh, quite entertaining. So I would say those two are probably my tops this year. And 1917, about, of course. Well, yeah, 1917 was amazing because, mm-hmm. in so many ways, because you, you got what you weren't expecting. I mean, if you saw the, if you just saw the promo for it on, uh, you know, the ad for it, then you really didn't. You didn't really know what you were going to be getting. It was, it was, it was a stunning film, and we didn't know any of the actors. No, you're right, and you know what? I think that actually lends itself to it. I love seeing movies where I don't know who who's mm-hmm. who. Uh, I have no preconceived notion of who they are, how they act. Uh, so it, it's like a real. It makes it almost more real in a sense. Yeah. Um, that war movie was incredibly suspenseful. Um, if I felt like I don't know if you saw Hurt Locker a few years ago, but it felt that same way, that same suspense. My palms were sweaty. I felt almost sick. Um, so yeah, I mean, it did its job clearly. You know, then there are movies where, or actors, where you just can't, and me anyway, I can't see them in another role. So when in the movie Midway, I see Woody Harrelson as Admiral Nimitz, I'd still see the guy behind the bar at Cheers. <laughs> me too, sometimes. <laughs> it just doesn't make, it doesn't work for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sometimes it's tough to, you know, to take that person out. You know, there's several people uh, who I have trouble absolutely have trouble seeing in different roles 100 percent or you could just have the irishman where you you know you cgi that person into their younger self and then maybe that helps i don't know yeah yeah so uh, as far as the actors uh, are concerned best actor best actress mm-hmm. who do you think well i think this year what's interesting about the oscars is that uh, i feel like pretty much every acting category is a lock on a certain person um, i would be surprised if it deviates off these people but um, I think I have Joaquin Phoenix for Best Actor for Joker. I, I don't see anyone else beating him for that. Um, I have Renee, Renee Zellweger for Best Actress for Judy, where she plays Judy Garland. Um, that movie in, it, in itself, not great as a whole, but her performance is very powerful. So I think that we'll see that. Uh, Brad Pitt is hands down going to win Best Supporting. And uh, I have actually a tie between Laura Dern and Florence Pugh for Best Supporting Actress. Not sure yet where that one's going to go, but Laura Dern has been kind of on fire this year so we'll see uh we'll see what happens there what about the no host again no host what about that yeah yeah you know some people don't like the idea i i personally like it i've watched this awards season uh, sorry this particular award show far too many times probably about 10 to 12 times at this point in a row consecutively and i have to say that without the host i find that there's a little bit it's a little bit less dry a little less boring uh some hosts really choke at the beginning and then the, the ceremony never quite recovers uh, over the three-hour-plus runtime. Mm-hmm. So, you know, sometimes it's kind of a blessing, sometimes it's a curse. Uh, how do you feel about it? Do you like the... the well, I, I kind of... I do. Well, I, you know, I think of Billy Crystal, right? And, well, yeah, uh, I think back to then, too. Right? And and who, too. what could be better than mm-hmm. just just his, his familiarity with everybody? Uh, they didn't know what he was going to be saying about them, and they just... <laughs> you could see the lack of comfort in the, in the front rows. Oh, my God, I hope he doesn't point at me. And, of course, he did. And, I feel like and, one of the... Yeah, one of the problems was just that, you know, no host really uh, placated everyone. You yeah. know, like there was always yeah. a, a camp that hated this host. There's always a camp that loved this host. So it's, you know, back and forth. And I think they felt like it was easier maybe to just have a bunch of different celebrities come in rather than have just one run the whole thing. So I'm going to try to watch tonight. I'm going to watch tonight, but the first political speech and I'm gone. Well, you're brave. There's 100% going to be a, a political speech for sure. Um, I know that Brad Pitt has been really uh, working the circuit at these award shows over the last few months, 
um, you know, taking the opportunity. Joaquin Phoenix, even at the at the BAFTAs, uh, I think it was last week, uh, said uh, went off about um, uh, people of color in film. So you know, I think it's a podium, a space for them to speak out. So I can guarantee you might be out within the first fifteen twenty minutes. We'll see what happens. Well, I like what Ricky Gervais said. You know, pick up your little award and go away. <laughs> Wasn't that so. cathartic when he? Uh, Words to that effect, yeah. But it's uh, there were some very good films, and uh, like I said, I really don't know my way around movies much. I haven't been to, uh, uh, I haven't made it a practice to go to the movies until recently. But I really enjoyed Richard Jewell was great. You know, Clint Eastwood directing that, then Ford versus Ferrari in nineteen seventeen, and then the ones you mentioned that you saw. So it'll be an interesting night. I think you'll see 1917 take quite a few awards, so great. you'll have that, right? Great. Absolutely. Yeah, I'll be there. Sure. When we talked last weekend, you said something that's really, really important to you, and that is the issue of diversity, a word that's used in many contexts in this country, but it's significantly important because we are a diverse society. Mm-hmm. Speak to that, please. Well, I believe um, diversity is really a fact in Canada, um, especially in Toronto, which is the most diverse city in Canada. Um, and Toronto is an example, a great example for the rest of the country. And uh, unfortunately, this diversity is not being reflected on cinema, on television today in Canada, um, being it in Ontario or Quebec or Nova Scotia or elsewhere. So, um, and even less so in other parts of the country. So, my point is that diversity um, should be reflected. To diversity is like, I mean, TV and cinema, for example, should be a mirror of what's going on on the street. They should be a demographic reality reflection of our society today. That's what cinema and television should be. And it's not the case today because you see something on the street, it's really colorful, plenty of people with different accents and different skin colors and different backgrounds. And, and it, it, that's what diversity is. That's what makes our city very vibrant here in Toronto. But you turn on TV or you go to cinema and then all this diversity vanishes. So we, we, want, we want to make sure that um, we are that the, the society we have today is also reflected um, on on TV and television and, and cinema. So the the film festivals have been extremely well received, and I know there's a great deal of interest in the 2020 Black Film Festival in Toronto. It begins on on Wednesday, right, and runs until the 17th. And you have a Lifetime Achievement Award for Spike Lee. Uh, speak about that, please. Oh, yeah. I mean, we're so excited. First of all, let me take a step back um, um, here to say that Spike Lee is a great friend, and we've been welcoming him three times in Montreal at the Montreal Black Film Festival, which we also do. We created that festival 15 years ago. And Spike Lee, each time came to Montreal, it was, I mean, it's always sold out theaters in Montreal, and he loves that city so well, so much. And uh, so that's going to be the first time Spike is going to come to the Toronto Black Film Festival. And, and then Spike was asking me, uh, what's the difference between the Montreal and the Toronto Black Film Festival? I say, well, here in Toronto, um, that's the most diverse city in Canada. And that, that's where you have the largest black population. Then he got so excited. 
So he cannot wait to come to Toronto. It's going to be on Thursday where it's, it's, it's a whole event with Spike Lee. It's a whole evening where we're going to pay tribute to him. He's going to receive the Lifetime Achievement Award. Also, we're going to screen one of uh, his films that was very successful and a bit controversial at the time called Bamboozled. It's a, it's a restored version of the film. So a wonderful thing to see that uh, restored version with him. And after that, we have a discussion with Spike Lee on stage. So it's a whole event for a whole evening. And people that love Spike Lee will really um, want to be there. And they don't want to miss that. So um, we pay tribute to Spike Lee because he's a pioneer. He's a trailblazer. He is a legend. Actually, he just got um, um, chosen as the president of the jury of Cannes for this year. And this is the first black person to ever be a jury president at Cannes. So he keeps making history. He's an award, um, an Academy Award winner. And um, everywhere they're paying tribute to Spike Lee. And I thought it was time for us here in Toronto to welcome him and give him the honor he deserves. And we're going to have him um, on Thursday at Queen Elizabeth Theatre at 7 p.m. And everybody is welcome. So I, I cannot wait. I know Toronto will pack the house and it's going to be uh, something you will never forget. Let's play a little bit of the clip from Spike Lee and the Black Klansman. Brother, we can't quit till we get our share. Brother, we can't quit till we get our share. Doesn't make grammatical sense, but okay. Say it loud. I'm black and I'm proud. Say it for OJ, Jimmy. You too. Say it loud. I'm black and I'm proud. Say it loud. I'm black and I'm proud. That's right. There it is. I believed you. From the Black Klansman, Spike Lee. You know, uh, he really is a huge, huge talent. Um, and that's, is that Thursday night? I'm sorry, I, I just missed you here because we have a lot of noise where we are because we're we're in festival mode already. Would you repeat for me, Roy? No, I said it's, it's Thursday night, right? The, um, the 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 tribute to Spike Lee is Thursday night. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's Thursday night at 7 p.m. and it's as I said, it's a complete night where we're gonna see a film of Spike Lee with Spike Lee, and then we pay tribute to him, and then after that, I will be having the honor, Roy. Can you believe again? Um, to interview him on stage and have this intimate conversation and discussion about many right. things, I I mean, things that are really um, difficult and things that are, um, you know, things like diversity on screen today, things like um, how we see the social economic uh, environment, especially in the yeah. Fabienne, I'm going to have to I'm going to have to interrupt because we are out of time. But I also want to let our listeners know you can go to torontoblackfilm.com, torontoblackfilm.com, and you can buy your tickets. The all-access pass is $159, priority access to all films and events. Regular tickets are $12, and you can also purchase them at the website, torontoblackfilm.com. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.